6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of James, chapter 3, verses 13 through chapter 4. Verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, this is the contrast. Wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. James 1.17, remember we looked at that, uh, every good gift is from above. Remember that? Chapter 1. Every good, every good thing that happens in your life comes from where? From, comes from God. Anytime you're down, start counting the good things that are happening and give God the glory. It's amazing how the list grows. Our citizenship, of course, is in heaven, not here. Our, our home is in heaven, not here. Our affection is focused above. There's verses for all these. It'll be in the notes. What are the evidences of pure wisdom, a true wisdom? Purity is for one. It's, purity means it's chaste, free from defilement. There is an affection for the world that can make one an adulterer in the spiritual sense. There's a, a number of verses. I've got them penciled in here. Uh, yeah, Psalm 115.8 and Psalm 135.18 tells us that we become like the gods we worship. We become like the gods we worship. Is the world unforgiving? Is the world harsh and cruel? If you're too close to the world, you will become harsh, cruel, unforgiving. That's another reason to worship Christ, because what you worship is what you'll become like. Another of these things that uh, James lists here is peace. See, man's wisdom leads to competition, leads to rivalry, ultimately to war. And that's what James is going to talk about in the next chapter. God's peace is based on holiness, not compromise. And Isaiah talks about that. Really more gentleness is another list on our list here. Sweet reasonableness is another way of Describing gentleness. Moderation without compromise. Gentleness without weakness. Carl Sandburg described Abraham Lincoln as a man of velvet steel. I like that. Another uh, evidence of true wisdom is compliance. Being agreeable, easy to work with, yielding to persuasion. Not a pushover, but yielding to uh, persuasion. Swift, remember what James said in chapter 1. Some of this is review for us here. Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. One of the things that I have not taken a lot of time to build here as we go through the book is the integrity of the book. These are not scattered admonitions. Do this, don't do this. Many people treat the book that way. It looks like it at first. When you really study the book, uh, you'll discover more and more it all ties together. All these things are echoes of the foundation that, that James laid in the earlier part of the book. Another list here is mercy, controlled by. Be full of mercy, be controlled by mercy. Another list is good fruits. 
The Spirit produces fruits to the glory of God. John 15, you remember the passage in John. We are instructed to be fruit inspectors, not gift inspectors. Another thing he lists here is decisiveness, singleness of mind. That's the opposite of wavering. Remember in James 1, 6, nothing gets the wavering man, double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Can your commitments be relied upon? Are you a fiduciary of those that trust you or rely on you? The word fiduciary is amazingly absent in the Christian vocabulary, yet any lawyer, any professional executive, anyone that's an officer of a corporation, anyone that's on the board of directors of a corporation, is, should well know what the word fiduciary means. It means you place the people who are relying on you, their interest ahead of your own. It's a very clear principle in law. There's only two kinds of relationships in the law, arm's length or fiduciary. Now, generally in life, you are not required to be a fiduciary unless you're a doctor-patient, attorney-client. Uh, there are certain relationships that are fiduciary relationships it's spelled out that way. And an officer of a corporation is a fiduciary. That's why it should be available to most of us that have been in that kind of a practice. And the word fiduciary, the fiduciary role is one that is a critical one. You know, what the, you know what the word fiduciary is in the Greek? Koinonia. We call our, our ministry Koinonia House because the word Koinonia means communication or fellowship. I was startled to discover it means a fiduciary, something that's a... If you're an employee of an employee, of, a, of an employer, you owe them 60 minutes for every hour paid, 8-hour day, 40-hour week, whatever, that's fine. If you're an, a, a, a manager or an executive, you owe more than that. You are required, you're viewed in the law, to be an officer or a man. You are a fiduciary of the corporation. You have, you have a, a burden to protect its intellectual properties and its customer lists and other kinds of soft assets. You are accountable. You, you are required to protect those. What may come as a surprise, a Christian employee is required by Ephesians 6 verse 9 and other passages to he owes, a Christian owes their employer a fiduciary relationship because you're, you're working as to, as, uh, as to Christ. Anyway, moving on. One of the other lists here is sincerity, openness, honesty, speaking the truth in love in the terms of Ephesians and so on. Okay, verse 18. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in the peace of them that make peace. In other words, we reap what we sow. It's a very serious thing to be a troublemaker in God's family. If you're running around with man's wisdom, if you're running around with these envies, strifes, and so forth, the echoes of your misconduct will injure a lot of people, but also will offend God. It's very serious to be a troublemaker within a church. If you're going to make trouble, do it somewhere else, not in the ministry, not in the church, because you, they've got a very, very special protective boss. And one of the things God hates, according to Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, is sowing discord among the brethren. It really is disturbing. I won't ask for a show of hands, but it's really disturbing how many fellowships have among them, almost as a characteristic, some that are sowing discord among the brethren. Very disturbing. Now, what's the result of all this is chapter 4. They, you think we have troubles... You should get some idea of the kinds of problems that were in the fellowship that James attended. They apparently had fights. They apparently, <laughs> they really went at it, according to his, from his admissions. Because chapter 4, first part of that is how to end wars. <laughs> and he's not talking about, you know, tanks and artillery and planes. He's talking about, you know, church meetings. Okay. And he will lay out three kinds of people we're at war with. At war with each other, 
at war with ourselves and being at war with God. Boy, sounds crazy, doesn't it? Who would possibly do that? Well, let's see what he says about it here. Chapter 4, verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? He's talking to a Christian congregation. Yes, they're Jews, they're 12 tribes, but they, I believe that, you know, obviously they're Jewish Christians. And, and so these, these, these struggles are among Christians. Yet I'm sure being Jewish, they sang Hene Matov, which is uh, Psalm 133. How, how, you know, uh, what a blessing it is to dwell together, right? How blessed it is for brethren to dwell together, right? <laughs> That apparently it wasn't that much fun. <laughs> it's interesting how uh, these uh, tensions are all through the scripture. Uh, you know, in Genesis 13, we have Lot and Abraham, where Lot chose the worldly way, and Abraham had to ultimately rescue him in chapter 14 from all that mess. And the story of Absalom and David in, in 2 Samuel 13 through 18, you all know the story. Even in New Testament, Luke 9, you get the disciples quarreling about who's going to be the biggest. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul talks about these Corinthians that were suing each other in court. And uh, I understand his logic. I happen to say, there's some, there are times that I feel the Christian community would be better off if they did sue each other. In the sense that we get some of these issues resolved. to get people held accountable for the misconduct. Because even though we're not supposed to sue in court, there was a procedure in the fellowship to deal with these issues that are rarely followed today. The lack of accountability, lack of any connection with the consequences of our action. That's the truth of the matter in many fellowships. And, and Paul talks about Galatians 5. He talks about the Galatians devouring one another. And even in Ephesians, he, in chapter 4, he exhorts them to unity. So these are, these are not unique to us. It's obviously something that the Holy Spirit gives us a lot of information. And of course, there's all kind, we can go ahead and spend a lot of time on, on defining the different kinds of agreements. There's class wars, rich, poor, whatever. We divide the congregation and the demographics, and they'll all have different, you know, you know, how that goes. And in our society, it's tragic. There are no Americans anymore. Right after the Second World War, America, there were Americans, because we had a shared national experience. But in the 50 years or whatever, the power brokers have split. You don't have Americans anymore. You've got rich, poor, black, white, men, women, anything they can find to divide demographically and pit one against another for their own purposes. You have labor wars, you know, labor and management. You're familiar with all those. They had the same thing. You can find uh, there's verses for all of these things. Fights in the church, personal wars of all kinds. But in the interest of keeping moving here. It's interesting that uh, in verse 1, he used the term, From whence come wars and fights among you, come they not hence, even from your lusts that war in your members. The word lust there in the Greek is hidene. It's the word from which we get the word hedonism. Uh, desires for pleasure. Hedonism is the belief that pleasure is the chief good in life. And it would be very disturbing, I think, for us to, to really reflect and analyze our own behavior, how often we make choices by what's the most pleasurable. It's interesting that the tasks or the assignments are things that really aren't that much fun, we defer. Confrontations aren't fun. So it's very, very typical in business as well as in the ministry to avoid confrontations, avoid dealing with an exhortation or a, or a situation that needs some handling. We, we make even our subtle decisions as well as our major decisions on a pleasure basis. We may not admit it, we'll, we'll dignify it with other labels, but that's probably at the root of it. Now, what's the pathology of this trouble? Where does it come from? What's the start? Verse 2, he's, James says, Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain, ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. 
Of course, the root problem here is selfishness. The root problem here is selfishness. And uh, that's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 6. For all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to whose way? Our own way. That's the root problem. The root problem. We find that, you remember, Abraham lied about Sarah. She was actually, it was only a half lie. said, tell them, you're my sister. Well, she was. Half sister. But the, it was still a lie because of what he was trying to protect his own life by doing that. And uh, remember after the Battle of Jericho, Achan, at the Battle of Ai, takes some stolen loot. See, again, what's, what's at the root of all of this? It's a self-centeredness, a selfishness. So what's the remedy for this? You, you ask and have not because you ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your own lusts. See, even their praying was wrong. Even their praying was really covetousness. Interesting. Selfish people are always unhappy people. Selfish people are always unhappy people. Yet how, how hard it is to learn that. Verse 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. One of the questions we should be asking ourselves, are any of us becoming too friendly with God's enemies? Well, let's take a look at these enemies. The first enemy of God is the world. And by that it means the cosmos, the world system. We need to discern that because everything of the world, what do you mean of the world? The world system, the satanic system. Now, Abraham was a friend of God. James mentioned that in chapter 2, verse 23, you may recall. Lot was the friend of the world. And, of course, Abraham had to come and ultimately rescue him. And friendship with the world leads to loving the world and being conformed to the world and being condemned with the world. Our souls are yet saved as by fire, as 1 Corinthians 3 uh, mentions. Friendship with the world is compared in the Scripture with adultery. I could say, how many of you are guilty of adultery? I might get some interesting hands, but probably all of us have to put our hands up if for no other reason, then um, we are married to Christ if we're Christians, and yet if we're friendly with the world, that's a form of adultery. And that's really the way the Scripture teaches it. It deals with it. Romans 7, 4 and elsewhere. And we need to be faithful to Christ, which means that uh, we cannot be friendly to the world system. This model of the believer, of God's people being married to Him, is an Old Testament idea. It's in Jeremiah, 20, uh, Jeremiah 3, first five verses. It's in Ezekiel 23, the whole chapter virtually, and the first couple of chapters of Hosea. Israel was portrayed as the wife of Yahweh. The church is portrayed as the virgin bride of Christ. Not the same thing, but a very parallel kind of idiom or concept. And James continues his logic here. Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, verse 5, that the Spirit dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Again, that's the false wisdom. See, that's all, that's all tied together. Okay, the second enemy of God is the flesh. And this is not the body. There's nothing wrong with the body. It serves its purpose. What is, when it says the flesh, it's referring to the old nature. When we sin against the, when we sins of the flesh, grieve the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, verses 6 and 7 deal with that in depth. Verse 6. But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. And there again, we have the, uh, the, the root manifestation of the flesh is pride. And uh, 
the, the antidote for that is humility. And we get humility through God's grace, not by some feigned self-abasement. Uh, well, we talked about the world, the flesh, and the third one we listed before was the devil. The devil is the one that introduced pride. He's the one that introduced a contrary will to the will of God in the universe through his own pride. Saw Adam's arrival and saw to it that Adam and Eve fell through his deceit. But it was through his pride that he fell. We learned that from Isaiah 14. We've done this before, but it's probably important enough and fundamental enough that we should just take... Let's just part quickly and refresh that. Isaiah... There's two passages that chronicle the career of Satan, his origin. And uh, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 are the two chapters. Easy to remember. They're both a heptatic. They're both a multiple of seven. But uh, Isaiah uh, 14 is a passage that, um, in a primitive sense, is directed to uh, the king of Babylon, but clearly the language pierces beyond the immediate context and goes cosmic on us. <laughs> and uh, verses 12 through 17 are the classic passage on the origin of Lucifer. The Holy Spirit tells us in verse 12, How art thou, the, the, the passage directed to uh, Lucifer, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of morning? Son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground which is weak in the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart. That's where sin always starts. It's in the heart. The rest is just mechanics. It starts in the heart. Thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation on the sides of the north. I will ascend upon the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. It's going to go on. It's kind of interesting. It doesn't say that he wants to be God. He wants to be like God. I have this conjecture in the back of my mind that when Adam was created, Satan saw him as a rival. A rival. Interesting. The first person singular. Boy, that should be a very cautious pronoun to use. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Pride. What's his destiny? Verse 15. Yet thou shalt be brought down to the shoal, to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man who made the earth to tremble? Who did shake the kingdoms? Who made the world like a wilderness and destroyed its cities? Who opened not the house of his prisoners? Whew. Some prophecy in there, not only his destiny, but we see some other side effects here. Is this the man that caused the earth to tremble? Which did shake the kingdoms? who made the world like a wilderness and destroyed its cities and opened not the house of his prisoners? Whew. Satan, the devil. He introduced pride and it's his chief, deceit is his chief weapon. First Timothy 3.6 and also Ephesians 4.27, neither give place to the devil. Now, so how do we do all this? That sounds good. Those are getting back to James here. We're down to verse 7. We're going to make it. We have three instructions from James as how to deal with this. First, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The word submit there, by the way, is a military term in the Greek. It means to get into your proper rank. Know your place. Get where you belong. Don't be a usurper, in other words. First, you submit yourself to God. Second, verse 8. Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Purify meaning to make chaste. So you submit to God and draw close to Him, and He'll draw close to you. Verse 3, I mean, excuse me, the third uh, element is to humble yourselves before God. 
as follows. Verse 9. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Well, that's a strange instruction. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into heaviness. What he means is sin is no laughing matter. We wink at that. We joke about it. We all fall into that trap. We need to repent of that when it happens. Sin is no laughing matter. God never winks at sin. There is no trivial sin in the Scripture. There's some obviously heavier than others, but there is still no trivial sin. God hates sin, and that's the problem. And we need to submit ourselves to Him, draw near to Him, and humble ourselves before Him. Turn your joy into heaviness. You want to know how spiritual you are? You're going to grow and grow in spirituality. Great. How do you measure it? How do you measure your spirituality? How much do you hate sin? When you hate sin the way God does, then you're getting closer, huh? Verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. Don't we love to sing that? Let's sing it with our hearts, though. God hates pride. Proverbs 6, we talked about that, 16 through 17. In Psalm 51, 17, David's famous prayer of repentance over Bathsheba. A broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Verse 11, speak not evil of one another, brethren. In other words, brothers, do not slander one another, is what it says. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judges his brother speaketh evil of the law, judges the law. He that thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. I don't know why it is that Christians always form their firing squads in circles. There are more newsletters, more web pages, more expose books written against the brethren by other brethren. And the last brethren should probably be in quotation marks. It's a commonly observed mystery by both secular and our Jewish observers. Christians seem to spend so much time nitpicking and libeling and slandering each other that it's a tragedy. The Jews disagree among themselves. They always say you got two Jews, you got three opinions. You know, they divide among themselves. But through thousands of years of trying to survive, they learn to close ranks. Their theological disputes tend to evaporate when there's a knock on the door. We don't do that. We got all kinds of Christians and good guys publishing to the open secular world all the uh, the real or imagined nits and nats of somebody who whatever. Anyway, moving on, verse twelve. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? Now we get into another subject that's a, a shift here, but it's an important one. I'll try to do it so we can finish the chapter. I think we will. And that has to do with planning. There's a lot of over-planning in the minds of James, and yet many Christians overreact to James' injunctions. We're trying to see if we can't strike a balance here of what's going on. I want you to remember that Pharaoh was troubled by a series of bad dreams. And through the wisdom of God, as manifested through Joseph, God used those warnings of the impending famines for them to prepare themselves. Pharaoh had to a series of dreams, each one, the idioms were different, but each one basically had the, the idea that there were going to be seven good years and seven bad years. And Joseph, the wisdom of God, now that's the knowledge. The wisdom was, let's use the good years to prepare for the bad years. And that changed the course of, you know, and Joseph became the prime minister of Egypt, put in a 20% tax. Very skillful administration that uh, made Egypt, made it very effective. So, now, how do we apply that? Where is the safest place for you to be? Everybody comes because of all the various threats on the horizon, people coming to Chuck, where shall I flee to? 
You know, should I, should I leave Manhattan and come to Coeur d'Alene? No, 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 no. Coeur d'Alene's cold in the winter. We don't tell, we don't tell them how nice, we keep it secret. Uh, <laughs> no, seriously, people say, Chuck, where should I go? The answer to where you should flee is obvious. Where is the Holy Spirit leading you to minister? The safest place in the world is to be right where God wants you, wherever that is. You don't want to be anywhere else. And unless He calls you clearly, He wants you to bloom where you're planted. Now, many people fear when you say you should follow the will of God, you get nervous because you don't really realize that God's will is better for you than you have any idea. Your unwillingness to, to accept the will of God is your doubt that His interest is in your interest. It's a lack of trust. Psalm 33.11 says, The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of His heart to all generations. His counsel, His will comes from where? Where does God's will come from? From His heart. What's God's heart towards you? Boy, I love Jeremiah 29. I can remember I was just beginning to sense the dark valley that was coming. And it happened that I attended a graduation ceremony up at a, one of our daughters was a, at Monta Vista Christian Academy up in Northern California. And they had a graduation ceremony. But the graduation ceremony, they had a, a verse, a life verse up on the stage. And Jeremiah 29, 11. And I, they thought it was for the graduating class. But I remember almost weeping because I knew that was for me. Because I knew what was forthcoming, which took us through our valley. But For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, plans for your welfare, and not for harm, to give you a future and a hope. And indeed he has. Verse 13. Go now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go to such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. He's talking about here people who make plans. See, but our, te- our plans need to be tempered with the realization that only God really knows the future. That doesn't mean we shouldn't plan and forecast, but we should do so with caution and with a, with a footnote, as God wills, as you'll put out here. Verse 14, Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. You've been listening to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of James. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.